Our God is holy, he's righteous, and he is love, and he is just. So let's go to him now and ask his blessings on the time, our time in his word today. We sang to you, Lord, that you are holy, holy. And this, the, 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 the lyrics of the song helped us to uh, look forward to the day that is sure to come when all of us in the family will be around the throne and all of us will be fellowshipping together. All of us will be worshiping you together, Lord. We thank you. We thank you for that day. We thank you for that hope. We thank you for Christ who came, lived the perfect life, died on the cross for all of our sins, taken our sins away. And now, Lord, it's just a matter of being loyal to you. Thank you for your love, for your grace, and for your mercy. And now, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, as we wait before you, that you'll open up your word to us. This most precious word. Help us, Lord, to understand it. Help us, Lord, to apply it for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me tell you a story that I uh, came across as I was uh, preparing, preparing for this message. Brighton Nordemeyer of Brandon, South Dakota, wanted to help kids who lost everything during Hurricane Katrina. Remember that a long time ago? She was eight years old at the time. And when Brighton's tooth fell out in the fall of 2005, she decided to donate the money she'd get from the tooth fairy to the Red Cross. But instead of waiting for the tooth fairy to arrive, Brighton mailed her tooth to the Red Cross. She included a letter explaining that the tooth fairy would render payment upon arrival. When news about Brighton's generosity reached the public, the Red Cross received a $500 donation from an anonymous donor who heard about Brighton's tooth and wanted to help provide a fairy tale ending. Isn't that great? You love that. Isn't that generosity at work? But can you imagine the Red Cross worker opening Brighton's letter? <laughs> but there's a reason why I share that story today. Because today we're going to talk about God's people having a generous testimony. It concerns money, and that's something we don't normally like to talk about in church, but we're going to a little bit. Resources. But not in the way that you think, even though the issue of the tithe is raised in our talk for the day. It's in Deuteronomy 26, 1 to 19. We still have a ways to go before we complete our tour of Deuteronomy, but I trust that those who have been here for a little while, that Deuteronomy really has been good news. Again, our series is the gospel according to Moses. And so if you haven't yet done so, pull out your Bibles to that passage, Deuteronomy uh, 26, 1 to 19. It's on page 186 in your pew Bible if you need that number. Now, we're at the end of a major stage in Deuteronomy. And though I haven't mentioned it for a while, this entire book is patterned after a very common way that countries drew up treaties back in the day. Only this time, it's the Lord, Yahweh, the divine suzerain, the superior king. He wants to make a treaty with his vassals or vastly inferior people. The learned people who study ancient things like this for a living tell us that the suzerain-vassal treaties are filled with warm, relational, even love language. See, these are not hard cold, unfeeling documents where superiors subjugates the inferiors. It's far more heartfelt than that. So let me run through this format very briefly to kind of help us to jog our memory if you've been with us for a while and to inform those of you who are sort of new. 
The first section of the treaty, and again, you follow that all the way through Deuteronomy, is where two parties sort of introduce one another to themselves. It's a preamble. And the next part is the prologue, where the two parties put down where they are in their relationship and how they got to be where they are. Walk down memory lane. Now, with Yahweh and Israel, what a lane that was. (laughs) You know, full reminders about Israel's rebellion and divine patience mingled with discipline where God trained his people and equipped them to enter the promised land through military conquest. Part three was a section giving the fine print, as in the king telling his vassals, you know, if you want a relationship with me, you need to do these things. Now, we saw this very thing beginning with the Ten Commandments in chapter five. And as I remind us so often, I'm going to continue reminding us till we all really get it, the law of God, the Torah, was given to people who what? Were already God's people. The Torah, the law of God, was not given to those who were not God's people. Remember how the Ten Commandments began. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house, slavery. Therefore, the Lord continues, you shall have no other gods before me, and so on. Yahweh told his people, because I am your deliverer, now here is how I want you to live. And in this book, Deuteronomy part three, the fine print of the treaty ends with our passage for today. Now, part four, the suzerain vassal treaty calls upon the divine witnesses in ratifying it as Moses told all Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life that you and your offspring may live. The final part of the treaty includes a section on the blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And we're going to see a a lot of that beginning next week because there's going to be a time for this. And though it doesn't sound so pleasant, I have something very special planned for chapter 27 next week. So you don't want to miss it. You need to be here. It's going to be very interesting. So with all that said, let's dive into the passage. It's the most excellent passage of Scripture. Again, it's about God's people having and maintaining a generous uh, testimony before the people living in pagan nations. In our passage for today, we find three evidences of God's people having a generous testimony in their relationship to the king. The first evidence is found in verses 1 to 11. The Lord's people were to put him first. The second evidence is found in verses 12 to 15, where God's people were to provide for the needy in their town in the year of the tithe. The third evidence is found in verses 16 and 19, where God's people were to praise him. And most incredibly, God will praise his people as they remain loyal to him. Fascinating, amazing stuff here. But before we get into the details of the text, let me give us a a brief orientation about this passage. As I mentioned, this is the end of the fine print of the treaty. Moses tells Israel when they conquered the land, every head of the household was to personally present himself in a consecration event on behalf of his family before the Lord. He's also to declare his praise to his God to, for his goodness and provision in a separate event, one that will happen three years after that. 
Think of this chapter as like a, a capstone on all the things that the Lord wanted his people to do. As we're going to see, God's people displaying a generous testimony is the most beautiful, most glorious witness that they can make to the pagan nations surrounding them. And how Yahweh plans to reward them for their faithfulness is unspeakably amazing. The first evidence of a generous testimony is found in verses 1 to 11. Again, putting the Lord first regarding the first harvest after Israel got settled in the land. So let's read verses 1 to 4. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God has given you. And you shall go into and put it in a basket and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. And you should go to the priest in the office in that day and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I've come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. Well, so far, so normal. See, we've seen this before. It's the head of the household to present himself to the Lord. Now with a basket of what was harvested. But now notice this. His harvest was not to come from the fruit trees there. It was not to be animal sacrifices, but was from the ground. Why is that so specific here? We'll look at the connection. Because the Lord God gave the ground, the land, to Israel. Therefore, what comes from the ground, the fruit of the ground, is what God is after. In a word, this harvest is the fulfillment of God's promise to his people. Not that God needed reminding of his faithfulness, mind you. Not that God needed food. Remember what he told his people in Psalm 50, verses 12 to 15. He said, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Form your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. God does not need anything from anybody. Can I get a witness? But everybody needs him. This gesture of taking the harvest to the priest is an act of praise to remind people that the Lord is faithful. He's full of grace. The Lord's promise to his people is sure, for the Lord will make it happen. In all of what the Lord went through regarding his people, God is faithful. And this small harvest from the fruit of the ground proves it. Now, as great as it was to bring the basket full of fruit from the ground to show the faithfulness of God. In verses 5 to 11, we're going to see the individual worshiper of Yahweh giving his personal testimony to the priest. It was in the presence of God's people, as a, the clergy, as it were. Now, the psalmist writes in Psalm 107, verses 1 and 2, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love is forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. The redeemed, this worshiper of Yahweh, is about to say so with his testimony. Now, speaking of testimony, isn't it great to hear God's redeemed people say so? You know, this is one of the reasons why we have a time of open worship, 
to give you an opportunity. We all may have an opportunity for the Lord's redeemed to give a testimony of God's goodness and faithfulness. So let's remember and never forget all that we are and all that we have comes from the good hand of God. He's been so good to all of us. Isn't that right? Now, what I want to do here is simply summarize this testimony of this worshiper of Yahweh. And I'm summarizing because I'm going somewhere with it. Let me give you some specifics of the testimony. Jacob, this man's great-grandfather, was a wanderer, or better fits the context, a perishing Aramean. He was literally a nothing and had nothing. See, the worshiper made that announcement that Jacob was so nondescript that even he had to take on the identity of his wives, Leah and Rachel, as I was reminded by one commentator, for they were of Aramean descent. As a frail man, Jacob went down to Egypt, for at the time he took his few family members down there, there was extreme famine in his homeland. The Israelite continues by saying, in essence, we went down to Egypt and there were only a few of us, but God greatly prospered us. We had extremely hard times in Egypt. Slavery comes to mind. But we cried out to the Lord. And he brought us out of Egypt and brought us into the land he promised to give us. And because of his goodness and faithfulness to me, I present the first, the first fruits of the ground coming from the ground he promised to give to me. What a testimony. Amen. The Israelite worshiper from whose roots include being no one of social status, having nothing. And now look what God has done. The gratitude is palpable. As I reflected on the testimony of this grateful Israelite, a picture of what I call the breadcrumbs of grace uh, marking his life came into my mind. And, you know, we're familiar with breadcrumbs, aren't we? You know, you are if you remember the story of Hansel and Gretel, right? Yeah. They, the little kids put the breadcrumbs out so they can find their way back home. So let me do a little breadcrumb of grace trail marking here when it comes to this Israelite described in these verses. It begins with the overflowing basket harvest of this man he brings to the priest. That's the first breadcrumb, grace. He gathers some harvest in a basket because the Israelites settle in the land. A second breadcrumb. He settled in the land because God gave Joshua and Israel the power to take the land a promise in conquest. They took the land of promise because God brought them out of Egypt. The Lord brought them out of Egypt in response to Israel's cry for deliverance from their slavery. Yet a few more breadcrumbs of grace. Jacob and his family were in Egypt in the first place. Why? To escape the famine in the homeland. They escaped the severe famine by going to Egypt because the Lord sent Joseph, Jacob's favorite son, on ahead of them so that in Joseph's words, he might save his people alive. Continuing further back in Jacob's life and more breadcrumbs, he was in the land of promise with his 13 kids, 12 sons and a daughter, because the Lord told him to return to the land and leave his uncle Laban's house. See, Jacob was at his uncle Laban's house because the Lord protected him from his brother Esau. Why? Because Esau wanted to kill him. And this saga all began with a man who stole his twin brother's valuable birthright. Jacob, 
whose name means supplanter, trickster, even deceiver. The one whose very name the Lord changed to Israel. How great is the grace and mercy of God. And for all of us here in the family of God today, we have our own breadcrumbs of grace, don't we? The hard times, the good times, the mundane times, absolutely terrifying and beautiful times, all tailor-made to lead you and to me to rejoice in the goodness, the faithfulness, and even the discipline of God, all so that we can be like Jesus in our character. Christ's likeness is what he's after for all of us. Now, many of you know some of my breadcrumbs. My parents married, divorced, remarried, and I eventually amassed seven of them to include a set of foster parents. This upbringing produced a great instability in my life. When I was in high school, I went up on the porch of my foster family after my uncle and aunt abandoned us three kids to go somewhere. And they were, you know, out there just gallivanting around. Having gone to the Air Force about two years later during tech school in Denver, Colorado, the Lord used Dave and then Steve to bring me to himself. My great desire for stability began to be fulfilled in the early days of my Christian experience, as well as my need to belong to a family and desire to walk alongside with them, to live in love and unity with my spiritual siblings. As mentioned, the Lord met my need for structure and stability, hence my absolute commitment to Scripture as the Word of God. And I can confidently say, my commitment to the church as the family of God and to the Scripture as the Word of God would not be as nearly as strong today as it would be if it wasn't for the Lord's breadcrumbs of grace and mercy all throughout my life to include and even especially the hard times. What about you? What are the breadcrumbs of grace in your life? See, with some of us, there are many. We can detect them. With others, maybe not so many. But whether a few or a lot, we know that God wastes nothing to get us to where he wants us to be, to find our unique place in his family, in his kingdom. Well, the second evidence of a generous testimony is found in verses 12 to 15. It's provision for the needy among them in their towns. So let's read those verses together. When you finish paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widows, they may eat within your towns and be filled. Then you shall say before the Lord, I've removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover, I have given to the Levite, sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandments you've commanded me. I've not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I've not eaten the tithe while I was in mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or have offered any of it to the dead. I've obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I've done according to all that you've commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation, from heaven, and bless your people, Israel, and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, the issue at hand is the tithe. A favorite subject of Baptist pastors all over the world. I've never been a fan, though. 
Let me give you two observations regarding this section. And then by way of reminder, let me tell you why there's a much bigger picture here than just putting 10% in the offering plate as we in 21st century American or Christianity do. First of two observations, God commanded his people to give the needy in the third year after they settled in the land, referred to as the year of tithing. Now, this tithe was to be given to the needy, specifically the Levite. He's supposed to be poor. You know how many pastors today are not poor. But anyway, the Levite, the town pastor, the sojourner, as in the foreigner who wanted to settle down and be at home in Israel and live among them, and then the orphan and the widow. All of these classes of people were on the low end of the socioeconomic scale. The people whom Moses described earlier in Deuteronomy as the poor you will always have with you. See, in that culture, there was little opportunity for upward movement there for these people especially. And in short, they had to rely on the community to help them on an ongoing basis. Second observation was the attitude and the manner by which the people gave the tithe. It was to be done totally. I gave it all, the entire 10% set aside for the tithe. It was to be done cheerfully. I've not eaten of it while mourning. It was to be done as a holy act. I did not offer it while I was unclean. So the tithe, given the third year after the people settled in the land, was to be done from a clean heart and complete actions, all with the intent that the needy would be fed and the Lord would be pleased. Now hang on to that thought, because we're going to see something amazing about this very thing in a bit. I just mentioned that there's a lot more going on regarding the issue of tithing than merely giving my 10% here. Let me give you some principles and some underlying attitudes regarding this command. It is a command to tithe in the Old Testament. See, in verse 15, we find the Israelite, after distributing his tithe to the needy in his town, he prays to the Lord to not only bless the people in his town, but that he would bless all those in the nation. And I see a timeless principle here regarding God's people giving it, giving to the needy. And I see it in the form of two prayers. Lord, make me a further channel of your blessing that I can give more as you have given me to give to the needy. Second, Lord, move on the hearts of all those who have to be able to give to those who are in need. But the fact is, when Israel began, everybody was in need, weren't they? They had nothing. They all started out poor and needy. See, the Lord gave them a land flowing with milk and honey, which is another way of saying, Lord, what more could we ask for? You've given us everything that we could ever want. My hands are an outstretched channel for your blessing and of your blessing to give away what you've given me. Remember, I mentioned that Moses told the people, the poor you will always have with you. This is an ongoing situation. Those who are able to give, they are to give. Now, it takes the Lord, doesn't it, to move on hearts of naturally selfish people to give in a way that pleases him. Now, clearly, tithing is something commanded here that his people are to obey in the Torah. However, though tithing is mentioned in the New Testament, Scripture never commands followers of Jesus to do so. Did you know that? I hope you did. If you read carefully. It's much better than the tithe. And think of it as 
we get to give. Hopefully you're going to agree with me once I walk us through some new covenant truth. As I mentioned, there is no command for followers of Jesus to tithe. See, church history tells us that for the first 800 years of the church's existence, tithing was not a thing at all. It wasn't even mentioned for the first 800 years. It became a thing when the Catholic Church married up to the state and they became known as the Holy Roman Empire. It was only after then is when tithing became a thing in the church. The truth is, the poor people gave nothing and the rich people were given opportunities to give. It would be about 700 years later, after tithing became a church mandate, that a German monk named Martin Luther nailed a document on the door of a church called the 95 Theses. Now, I recently skimmed through these 95 statements of protest, and some scholars say that all of these statements have something to do with the selling of indulgences. And what that basically is, it was a way of filching money from the people, as in the clergy to get from the people. So in some way, the Protestant Reformation began over the church's abuse of money. In the New Testament, the Lord has given us several principles by which we can order our giving. Let me just list them for you because they are self-explanatory. They're on the screen. First of all, we're to recommit ourselves anew to the Lord when we give, for he wants our hearts before he wants our money. Second, we're to cheerfully, we're to give as we have decided in our hearts to give. There's no certain set amount here. We're to give humbly, not prating our gifts so that all can see it. And we're challenged to give sacrificially as well. We're also to prioritize our giving to our spiritual family first. Paul writes to the Galatians in 6.10. Galatians 6.10, he says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially. In short, we must take care of the needs which arise in the church first, among family first. And then we meet the needs of those outside the church, outside the family of God. I know it sounds pretty counterintuitive, sounds pretty strange, because we've been trained for about the last 50 to 100 years that we got to get out there and give the, the, the world, the lost, what they need materially. See, we've got to show the world that God loves them by giving them stuff, by meeting their needs. See, there are many who say that we can't give the lost, the gospel, when they have empty stomachs? Well, I beg to differ for two reasons. Jesus and Paul. <laughs> Those are pretty good reasons. Let me challenge you. Do your homework this week. Read two passages of Scripture. John chapter 6, one of them. Take note here in this passage of how long the crowd was with Jesus before he fed them. And then second, read the book of Acts chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. And notice how many would be affected by the severe famine that was to come in the land. Also notice what the early church did about it and for whom financial resources were raised and why they were raised to take care of that natural disaster for the people affected by it. So to sum up this second evidence for a generous testimony, 
to include the tithe command from Deuteronomy 26, 14. If we have the means to give, we're commanded to do so. But as we've seen, there's far more to it than just cold, hard checks or cash in the offering plate. Let's ask this question in relation to our giving. What do we have that the Lord has not ultimately given to us already? See, his generosity is infinite. If we're going to bear the likeness of our heavenly father, then we need to seek to give to our brothers and sisters in need. We need to do this freely and humbly and sacrificially, always keeping in mind what the Lord has given to us and continues to give to us. The third evidence, generous testimony, is found in verses 16 to 19. God's people were to praise him, and most incredibly, God will praise his people as they remain loyal to him. Let's read these verses. You've declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession, as he has promised you, and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in high honor above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God, as he promised. Amazing verse, isn't it? Notice in verses 17 and 18 of a mutual declaration. God's people proclaim that they are his people. They pledge allegiance to Yahweh as their God. But what does this pledge entail? Something about as obvious as the air that we breathe. Yahweh's vassals the people whom he delivered out of Egypt, the people whom he fed 40 years in the wilderness, the one who made an everlasting covenant with their ancestor Abraham, declared their allegiance to Yahweh by saying, I love you. That's what it says, right? I love you. You might be thinking, wait a minute, pastor, there's nothing here about love. Are you reading this passage right? Are you trying to add words of scripture? Nope. What does Moses say? Walk in his ways. Keep his statutes, his commandments and rules. Obey his voice. There's love right there, right? Yes, it is. See, earlier in Deuteronomy, we hear these words that Yahweh said to Moses. Love me, keep my commandments. Fast forward thousands of years. What did Jesus say to his disciples? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. To pledge allegiance to the Lord means... God's people obey him because we love him. Now, God's people not only obey him because he is their deliverer, they obey him because of who Yahweh is. And who's Yahweh? <laughs> He's only the king of the universe, right? Doesn't he have the right to demand all his creatures obey him? Enough said. <laughs> Nike theology now. But notice now, in a mind-blowing, heart-exploding kind of way, what the Lord declares regarding his people in verses 18 and 19. They are his treasured possession. He will set his people in praise and in fame and in honor above all nations. He will set them apart from the rest of of the nations as his special, holy people. Do you think the Lord might be just a little bit partial? to his people, 
I think so. But who are his people? As we read through Deuteronomy and the prophets, rebellious, sinful, stubborn, complaining people. People who are thoroughly human like us. But the Lord tells us why he loves his people. Deuteronomy 7, 8 says, because the Lord loves you, is keeping the oath they swore to your fathers. Simply put, Yahweh loves his people because he does. That's it. He's being faithful and he loves them because he does. Isn't that amazing? That's the heart of the matter. The Lord loves all his people, all of his people, by the way, not just, not just to the Jews, but all of his people, all followers of Jesus in our day now. And he does it just because he does. It's who God is. Remember what John said in his first letter regarding the Lord's love for us as followers of Jesus? We love, why? Because he first loved us. I heard that somewhere before, Bible Fellowship. Of course, the profound reason is because Christ has taken away our sins and he's enabling us, inviting us into fellowship with him. But let's not forget the affections of the Lord. I mean, the Lord Jesus calls his people his bride. If that's not a term of endearment, I don't know what is. He calls us his children. Again, endearment. So let me point out something else here. What did the Lord say he would do to his people? He will lift them up. And he will lift them up high above all nations. And what would be his reason for doing so? Simply put, to show off his people as a witness to the nation. Jesus described it well when he told his Jewish disciples in Matthew 5, 14 to 16. He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine. By the way, the your here is a plural. Light shine before others so that they may see your good works together and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In short, the Lord tells us and Israel, as we are his followers, he has set us on a hill as a light to the world, as the church, individual congregations as well. So what happens when a city is that's filled with light and people are in the valley living in darkness, pitch darkness in the valley. People in the valley, what will they do? They will look up. They will see. They will see the light in the city. They'll see us. And what are they seeing us doing? Engaging good works. And what ought to be their response, Jesus says, to glorify our Heavenly Father? Now, I'm convinced there's something specific here that the Lord wants the nations living in the dark valley to see. It's simply this, that God's people taking care of one another, living together in love and unity. I mentioned earlier that after God's people were to settle in the land and then from a clean heart and a complete action, they would please the Lord by meeting the needs of the needy in their town. But notice where this scenario is placed in the text. It's right before God said, I will set you in praise and in fame, and in honor, high above all the nations. 
And so in essence, I see here as God's people, as we take care of one another because we love one another because he loved us first, the world will notice the light because we're city set on the hill. How can people not see this if we're doing it right? And some from the world, as they are in the darkness, will see the city on a hill, us taking care of one another, and some of them will say, I want me some of that. I've been in the darkness too long, and I see what they're doing, and I see what's going on. See, did Jesus not pray for our unity? And what was his purpose for doing so? Was it so that we just have a good time on Sunday mornings? Was it so that we might feel good coming to a religious social club? None of that. Away with it. Notice carefully the words of the Lord Jesus as he prayed to his father. Many of us have heard these words before, but hear them again for the first time. Here's Jesus. Right before he went to the cross, he was in agony. He knew what was coming. And of all the things he could have prayed about, he prayed for you and for me if we're in the kingdom. And here's what he says. He says, I do not ask for these only, as far as the 11 disciples, but also who will believe in me through their word. Because all of us who are in the family this morning, and what do you pray for specifically? That we all may be one, unified, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So they all may be one in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent It's imperative that we live in love and unity with fellow Christians so that the world will believe that Jesus came. And by implication is that if he can save us, members of this motley crew, then he will be able to save them as well. And I would say that to the degree that people can see our practical unity and love for one another is the degree that some in this world will have hope that maybe Just maybe, if Jesus can save us, he can save them too. And so as I land this plane, let me offer one more New Testament example of what it means to have a generous testimony found in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to 47. The hallmark of the early church was open-handed generosity. The Holy Spirit happily invaded their lives. And may we be encouraged to live the truth of God's word. It is more blessed to give than to receive. May we be generous for the sake of Jesus who loved us to the uttermost. Here's what Luke said as he described the early church in Acts 2. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. By the way, this is not communism, okay? It's not coerced. This is just something that they did because the Holy Spirit lived within them. It was volunteer, right? It wasn't coerced. This is not communism. I just put that out there. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being. Father, thank you for being the generous, gracious, loving, kind, benevolent God that you are. You are Yahweh, King of kings. Yahweh who who owns everything. And you take care of everything that's your own. 
We thank you, Lord, that this world is yours and the fullness thereof, including every last person on the planet. Lord, we know that there are many people who are living in rebellion against your authority. But I thank you, Lord Jesus, that when we bow the knee to you because you have, you have convicted of us of our sin through the Holy Spirit and we've responded to you, we thank you for allowing us to do so. We thank you for allowing us to come into the kingdom to be, as it were, to be reconciled to you. So now, Lord, as we live the life in reconciliation to you, always living in constant repentance of our sin, because, Lord, we want to please you. We want to please you in all things, including how we handle the resources you've given us, so graciously given us. I pray, Lord, that our giving will truly be done from a heart of gratitude, not from a heart of legalism. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will help us to do these things because we want to, not because we feel like we have to. Because, Lord, you've given so much to us, we can never outgive to you. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us today and to take these truths and maybe, if, if need be, that we'll, we'll uh, uh, tweak some of the things in our own lives that may need to be tweaked. Lord, I pray that you help us to remember anew and afresh of how you've led us and how you brought us. Because, Lord, as, as these uh, breadcrumbs of grace Help us to remember, Lord, that you've never, um, you've never thrown away anybody, as it were. Lord, you have wanted us. You've wanted every person to come to you. And so, Lord, I thank you for the Holy Spirit who right now is convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So, Lord, I pray for, for all those under the sound of my voice who have not bowed the knee to you. I pray that today will be their day of salvation. And, Father, I thank you now for this time of giving. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to give from a heart that's truly cheerful and glad and overflowing with gratitude for what you've done. I pray, Father, that you help us to sing as well, to sing with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength to you, knowing that this is another act of worship. And we'll give you thanks and praise for what you will do here in Jesus' name.